Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. A trend that has more or less fallen out of fashion, and probably for the best, is the naming of serial killers, as if they were some sort of macabre and evil twisted superhero. We had the Night Stalker, Son of Sam BTK, Jack the Ripper, the Green River Killer, and the Doodler. Yes, you heard me right, creeps. The Doodler. Haven't heard of them? Well, that's fine, because guess what? That's who we'll be talking about in this episode. Between 1974 and 1975, the streets of San Francisco were terrorized by an unknown murderer. Their victims were all white, gay men, which the aptly nicknamed Doodler found in nightclubs and diners. After meeting briefly, the Doodler would tell his intended victim that he was a cartoonist, hence the name, and he would draw a picture of them sketching their likeness in order to gain their trust. As the night carried on, the Doodler would say goodbye, leaving the man an intended victim, but the Doodler wouldn't be so far away. As soon as the intended Mark was alone, he would stab them until the life had left their body. The first half of the 1970s was a weird time. It had been preceded by the 60s, which before it had been preceded by the 50s. If we live in the age of information and technology now, marked by rapid technological advances, then that 30-year era was marked by the rapid shifting of cultural norms and values civil rights movements burning the bra and the rise of modern feminism, the rage against Jim Crow and the fight to end segregation. It was a revolving door of policy and societal change, and almost all of it for the betterment of society. But it seemed in some regards, one or two communities had been left till last in the never-ending struggle for egalitarian economic and societal policies. Just over a year before the Doodler murders began, homosexuality was still classified as a disorder by the American Psychiatric Association. According to the famous gay Republican turned Democrat Harvey Milk, 20 to 25% of the estimated 85,000 gay men in San Francisco during this time were closeted about their sexuality, feeling that no matter how much their friends and family loved them, they wouldn't if they were to expose their true colors. I don't care what your personal beliefs are. I don't really want to know what they are either. I just want us here and now to acknowledge what a terribly desperate and lonely scenario would be to find yourself in. But why is this important in a true crime case? Well, hold your horses, because you're going to find out. By Ocean Beach, on January 27, 1974, the body of Gerald Cavanaugh was discovered. At just 49 years old, the man lay dead, covered in what were telltale markings of a struggle or fight. His body was dotted by stab wounds, and it appeared that at some point in the struggle desperate to survive, Gerald had either raised his hand to block a slashing blow of a knife, or had raised his hand grabbing the blade as it descended from above, leaving him with a slice in his hand. At first glance, 
The simplest solution would be that it was a failed robbery, but police simply had to spend a moment looking at what the evidence presented to tell that that conclusion was not correct. Gerald still had money in his pockets, easily accessible to the murderer, and a watch still hung around his wrist. When Gerald Cavanaugh was discovered, he'd only been dead a few mere hours. Little about Gerald himself is known. We do know that he was born in Canada in 1923, and that he had moved to San Francisco, was unmarried, and worked in a mattress factory. So his identity or personal affiliations would be of no help to the investigation. What is absolutely known about Gerald, though, is that he was the first victim of the doodler. Try as investigators did, what was present at the scene in all lines of inquiry essentially led nowhere. There was also the small variable that Gerald was an unmarried man, if you catch my drift. And while I can't say for certain that this had any impact on the investigation or sense of urgency, I think history speaks loudly enough for itself. Six months followed after the murder relatively quietly, and the citizens of San Francisco forgot about the vicious murder of Gerald. All things seemed to be as they were before, the city running like clockwork as usual. That is until Joseph J. Stevens was found murdered by the shore of Spreckles Lake on June 25th in the scene at Golden Gate Park. All accounts I found referred to Joseph Stevens as a 27-year-old female impersonator working at Finocchio's on Stockton Street. Now, I take that job title as an odd euphemism for calling someone a drag performer. Maybe that term didn't exist in 1974. Admittedly, I'm not very well versed in the history of drag culture, as much as I do enjoy the occasional RuPaul's Drag Race binge every now and again. Joseph, originally from Texas, had been recruited to work at the bar as a replacement act, but he'd found himself falling into his own personal gay stand-up niche, which, from the sources I've read, was very well received. The previous night, Joseph Stevens had been seen at the Cabaret Club in North Beach, and from there it is believed that Joseph tragically made the acquaintance of the doodler, who received a ride from Joseph to the park, where he was then stabbed three times. Where there had been six months between Gerald and Joseph, police wouldn't have to wait nearly as long for the third murder, as the unknown killer seemed to have happened upon the perfect circumstances less than two weeks after the discovery of Joseph Stevens. 31-year-old Klaus Christman's body was discovered by a dog walker along a beach by Lincoln Way. He'd been stabbed 15 times, and his throat was slashed from ear to ear. A detective on the case named Dave Toski described the killing as one of the most vicious he'd ever seen. Klaus and his family had been staying with friends in San Francisco for a period of three months when he was found murdered. He was found with makeup in his pocket, and a witness placed him at a gay nightclub the evening before the discovery of his body. His family transported his body back home to be buried in Germany. Then, nearly a year passed. Once again, the murders, with little to go on and no serious line of inquiry, were nearly forgotten, pushed into the background by more topical crimes. But then it started back up again. On May 12, 1975, the body of Frederick Kappen was found. Frederick was a 32-year-old nurse, and having served in the Navy during the Vietnam War as a medical corpsman, he had been given commendations for saving the lives of three other men while under attack. He was found sprawled on the ground between two residential streets in the Parkside District. He'd been dragged nearly 20 feet from the place he'd been murdered, 
having been stabbed in the heart. And then with almost the same brief period of time as had been seen between Gerald and Joseph, on June 4th, Harold Gullberg's body was also discovered, this time by a hiker. Harold Gullman, a 66-year-old man, was discovered with his throat slashed on a golf course only a few feet from a heavily trafficked trail. But unlike the other bodies, he hadn't been found immediately. His body had laid there just out of sight for nearly two weeks when he was found, and the decomposition was advanced. Investigators were aware that the murders were connected. It was clear that each victim had been patrons of gay bars at least semi-frequently, and all victims had been found within four miles of one another. Each had driven, or been driven, to a secluded area where they had been stabbed with a knife. And while their valuables remained, their ID had been taken from their bodies. The LGBTQ community of 1975 San Francisco was rightly worried and frightened. The community was a small one, tightly interconnected and woven together. Everyone knew someone who then knew someone else. And while the way I put that sounds a bit nonsensical or of little consequence, what I'm trying to get at is that there was not a large degree of separation from any one person and the murders. As the past had proven in San Fran, as well as other large metropolitan areas, the worry was that the attitudes of the police towards the LGBTQ community would prevent them from carrying out their duties to their utmost ability. Would they extend the same urgency and resources to solving the murders of gay men that they would extend to someone murdered who was deemed the norm of the time? This fear insulated the gay community and reasonably made them less willing to help officers and comply with assisting in the investigation. Now, July of 1975 was both a terrifying time but also one in which true progress could potentially be made in discovering the identity of the murderer plaguing San Francisco. And that's because in July of 1975, two attacks occurred in a place called the Fox Plaza Apartments. Two weeks separated the two attacks, and like all others, both intended victims managed to escape, making it possible for them to give descriptions of their attacker to investigators. What they described to police was a young, tall, handsome, slim black man with very smooth skin. Finally, they had a description. But as quickly as that had happened, a third individual was also assaulted, and he also managed to escape, and also managed to give the same description. With the three individuals giving the same description, was it possible they finally had a somewhat accurate idea of what the doodler looked like? Well, yes, actually. Unlike other cases we've covered, the additional details provided to police actually matched what little details police were already aware of, and all independently told, their stories corroborated one another. Police learned that the man was an artist, a talented one, who came across as very intelligent and probably had a very extensive education. He was described as being charming, which of course he'd need to be in order to convince so many men to go alone with him to remote locations such as the one the bodies were discovered. While the murders were occurring in San Francisco, police were confident that whoever the doodler was, he was traveling to San Francisco on the weekends in order to murder his victims. And then once he was finished, he would pack up and drive on out of town. What seems to me, personally and anecdotally, as an unreasonably long time, five months after the three attacks at the apartment complex, police finally released a sketch of the man who they believed they were looking for. According to the accompanying description, 
The doodler was between 19 and 22 years of age and roughly six feet tall. He was a man of a thin build and wore a Navy style watch. Police released the notion that they believed he was having sexual identity problems and was probably undergoing psychiatric care when he carried out the killings. As an additional note, they also believed that he would have had mental difficulties or mental impediments when it came to sex itself. Now, this seems like a substantial amount to go on. Surely when they released the information, tips would come flooding in. Maybe neighbors would recognize neighbors, who knows? Well, unfortunately, despite the wide-reaching net that they had cast by printing the sketch and partial profile in the newspapers, no new information came forward. But rumors did begin to spread of other gay men who had had similar encounters with the individual dubbed the doodler. It ranged from actors to diplomats. The stories just began to pile on top of one another. But I can't give you any of that information as it's still all classified and locked away, and that's probably for the best. So while no new information had initially come forward, readers of the San Francisco Chronicle eventually did begin to call in tips to the dedicated hotline, and a concerning amount of tips all referenced the same individual as someone they believed might be the doodler. The man was an artist who matched the sketch. He'd been seen in bars offering to draw customers end when police arrested the man. He had on his person a sketchbook and a butcher's knife. Needless to say, but I'll say it all the same, creeps, this at first seemed to be exactly what police were looking for. The unnamed individual was brought in for questioning, but denied any assaults or murders, and became so incensed at the accusation and line of questioning that he actually physically attacked one of the detectives. He was, of course, arrested for the incident, but when charges were brought against the man for the attacks and murders as well, the three survivors from the apartment complex would not testify against the man in court. And this is when the closeted nature of over a quarter of the gay community in San Francisco comes into play. All three men, all three victims, all of the survivors were closeted. They weren't out to their families in fear of rejection. They weren't out to their friends in fear of ridicule. And they weren't out at their place of work in fear of discomfort with coworkers or termination. They were forced by the less than loving and forgiving remnants of the puritanical foundations of America itself. The idea that a killer go free was less harmful to these men than the idea of the death of their support systems and the death of their identity in the eyes of those they loved and cared about. Now, that statement isn't criticism against them. It's criticism against a system that at times is far too slow to change. For God's sakes, it's 2021 and we still want to impose ourselves into the private lives of others and deem who and who does not have the right to be married. So can we blame them creeps for wanting to stay closeted in 1975? No, no, I don't think we can at all. As unfortunate as it may be, as a result, the man in question was let go, and his name was never released. The search to this day is ongoing as a result. In 2018, police released an aged-up version of the sketch, but once again no credible leads were generated. But thanks to the investigation, arrest, and conviction of the Golden State Killer thanks to advances in DNA testing, the efforts into uncovering the identity of the doodler have been renewed, and hopefully this will lead to the arrest of a man 
police believe were responsible for, in total, 14 murders in San Francisco in a frenzied period that lasted 1974 to 1975. The Doodler case remains open, as does the tip line. Furthermore, the $100 reward for information leading to the murderer is still waiting to be claimed. Anonymous tips can be called in at 415-570-9299. So creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps. Take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.